There have been some extraordinary births in the history of the world. There have been some, some spectacular births, to name a few, some extraordinary births. One lady was 39 weeks pregnant. If you don't know, it takes 40 weeks, but she was 39 weeks pregnant. She got permission from her doctor to still run the Chicago Marathon at 39 weeks pregnant. She ran the first half, and she walked the second half because she started to go into labor after the first half of the marathon. She continued and finished the race while having labor pains and then rushed to the hospital to have the baby. The oldest woman on record to give birth is 70 years old. So for some of you, it's not too late. (laughs) 70 years old. Her husband was 79. They've been married for over 50 years, and they had a baby. The largest child to ever be born and survive, both the mother and child survive, was in September of 1955. And this woman gave birth to a baby boy weighing 22 pounds, 8 ounces. 22 pounds, 8 ounces. I don't know if it was a C-section or not, but I pray pray it was. Um, Did they do those in 1955? I don't know. I don't know when that was invented. There are a lot of extraordinary births in the history of the world. I'm sure there are many more. But yet still, Jesus holds the record, in my humble opinion, for the most extraordinary birth ever. Today we're going to zoom in on the person of Jesus, the birth of Jesus. We're going to look at the manger. We're going to look at what theologians call the incarnation. I had a joke about a flower incarnation, but it was too lame, so I decided to cut it. Over the past two weeks, we have been aiming to behold Behold Jesus. We've said that beholding means that we are trying to slow down, to zoom in, and to focus on different aspects of Jesus, and to really understand something about him and behold it. Slow down and digest and really understand it. We started, we, lo- we looked at the first week at the promises fulfilled and how the entire Old Testament points to and longs to Jesus. Last week we looked at Jesus being the king, the king of kings, and what type of king he was. This week we're going to look at the manger in Bethlehem. Behold a baby in a manger and seek to understand and be captivated by this wondrous mystery of what theologians call the incarnation. Let me say this from the top. The central message of Christmas is the incarnation. The central point of Christmas is God with us. That God became flesh. I want you to think about this word for a moment, incarnation. You might find the similarity to another word you're probably familiar with, reincarnation. 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 Now I can't say it. Reincarnation is something that Eastern religions hold to. We do not. That they believe that after you die, your spirit reincarnates with some other flesh, some other body, animal, person. You get something new. Your spirit retakes physical form. We don't believe that, but the word incarnation is still kind of like that. It literally means embodied in flesh or to put on flesh, to be clothed in flesh. 
The central meaning of Christmas is that God who is spirit, God who is not human, became or took on flesh, became human, became a man. The prophet Isaiah who looked forward talked about this idea when he called him Emmanuel, God with us. This is what we want to behold this morning. How is it? Why is it? What does it mean that God took on human form and took on flesh? Let's behold the wondrous mystery that God took on flesh. And let's read together Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Matthew writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and pens the very words of God, and he says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be a child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. The first thing I want us to behold this morning is the virgin birth. Let's behold the virgin birth. There was a movement not so long ago that tried to remove all of the the miracles, remove all of the miracles from the Bible in order to make the Bible more believable. You see, people thought that uh, as the more modern we got, the more scientific we got, the more people would be skeptical of the supernatural. The more people would be skeptical of the miracles. And so there was this movement to remove all of the miracles from orthodoxy, to remove all the miracles from things Christians believe in order that more people might come and believe and they wanted to remove the difficult things. And one of those things was the virgin birth. Let's remove the virgin birth in order to make it more palatable. But I want you to see this morning that not only is the virgin birth true, but it is absolutely necessary for Jesus to be able to accomplish his mission and save us from our sin. First, let me tell you what the virgin birth is not. Let me tell you what the virgin birth is not. Some of you have heard the term the immaculate conception. The immaculate conception is not the virgin birth. Immaculate conception is something the Catholic Church holds to. It is not what we hold to in the virgin birth. The Immaculate Conception says that it is about Mary, the mother of Jesus. And the Immaculate Conception says that Mary was kept from having original sin and remained sinless her whole life so that when she birthed Jesus, he could be sinless as well. We do not believe that. We believe that Mary was just a normal young girl called by God to do a great, amazing thing. The reason Catholics want to hold this doctrine, though, is for the same reason, and it's an important one, that we hold to the virgin birth. The Immaculate Conception is just unnecessary and also happens to be unbiblical. The reason the virgin birth is important 
It's because in order for Jesus to die and pay for our sins on the cross, he had to first be without sin. He had to be blameless, right? He had to be a spotless lamb, a blameless sacrifice. That means he had to be born without sin and without a sin nature. To be, he had to be born without what we call original sin. That is the sin of Adam from the garden. You see, Adam's sin in the garden functioned as all of our sin. Adam represented us in the garden. He's what we call our federal head. He stood for us, represented us in the garden. And so his sin is our sin. His failure is our failure. His condemnation is our condemnation. His sin is passed to us. We have a sin nature because of Adam. We are sinners not because we sin. We sin because we're sinners, and those are different things. And so we have this in Adam. It's passed on through him. And so the virgin birth allows for Jesus to be born without the taint of sin from his father, Adam. Without original sin and without a sinful nature, Jesus could truly grow up and not sin and die as the blameless lamb for the sins of the world. You see, the virgin birth enables Jesus to be born without sin. The virgin birth enables Jesus to be born without sin. Not only that, the virgin birth confirms that Jesus was a man, a physical, living, breathing man. There were some in the early church that, that claimed that Jesus could not have been a man because divinity could not be flesh. Uh, you may have heard of them, they're called the Gnostics. They believed that flesh was inherently sinful and broken and cursed. They said that Jesus was more spirit that he was like this ghost that floated around that you could see him, but you couldn't touch him because he wasn't physical. But the virgin birth reminds us that God became just as we are, that he became flesh. He was born of woman. He had flesh and bone. He was truly one of us. You see, Jesus is 100% human. Jesus is 100% human. No, he's more than that, but he's not less. He's 100% human. Being born of woman is how he can be uh, the human, uh, uh, in the human line of David, right? How he can take the throne of David. It is how he can be a priest that stands in the gap between us and God. It is how he was able to suffer like we did. It is how he was able to be tempted in every way that we are, yet did not sin. It is how Jesus was able to experience everything that it means to be human so that he could sympathize with us and sympathize with our weaknesses. It, he had to be human so that he could die for us and so that he could be raised for us. The virgin birth matters because it means Jesus really and truly was human in every way. Finally, it matters because it shows us that God took the initiative to save us. You see, every prophet, every priest, every king, every person used by God was someone that God raised up. Someone that God called out from their current life to a new life to serve him. They went from a moment in their life not being used by God to a moment being used by God. But that is not the case for Jesus. God did not decide one day to use him. He did not call him out of his life into a new life. Jesus instead was sent. Jesus was the king in the kingdom of heaven, ruling and reigning in heaven with his father. And his father sent him. He left heaven, came to earth to be born as a baby, 
and to save us. You see, God initiated our salvation by intervening in human history by sending his son to be born. God initiated our salvation by intervening in human history by sending his son to be born. In all of the Roman and Greek myths about the pantheon of gods, they had a lot of gods that would come down and interact with the world. Even Acts mentions one, one time they meet some guys and they say, oh, is this not Zeus and Apollos or somebody? They thought that their gods came down and interacted in the world, they, that their gods came and, and hid as mortals, pretended to be mortals to interact with the human world. But none of the pantheon of Greek and Roman gods was ever born of woman. They never truly entered human history or entered our world to live like us. Only Jesus has done that. Behold the virgin birth where God becomes man. Number two, behold the hypostatic union. Behold the hypostatic union. Now some of you hear that and you're like the Grinch from Jim Carrey, the best Grinch, and you're like hobbity hobbity whatty. The hypostatic union. Hypostatic simply means personal. Hypostatic means personal. So the hypostatic union is the personal union of Jesus' two natures. The personal union of two natures becoming one. Two different things becoming one. You see, Jesus is simultaneously fully human and fully God. He's simultaneously fully human and fully God. These two distinct natures are united in one person, Jesus, the God-man, the God-man. He is not two persons, he is one person. He is not half of each nature. He's not 50% man and 50% God, no. He is 100% God and 100% man at the same time. This is what we call the hypostatic union. These two natures are perfectly united in this one person. Jesus is not divided. One creed says it this way. His two natures are without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation. Jesus is one. Jesus in his humanity is frail. He gets hungry. He got sick. He grew tired. He suffered. He ached. He felt emotions. He had friends. He played in the backyard. He was tempted. He experienced life as a human. For he was and still is 100% human in every way just without sin. But he is also God. Sadly, I often hear people speak about Jesus so wrongly. I, I, I've heard a couple of these phrases. One of them is when people will say this. You know, when God created Jesus. No, Jesus is uncreated. Jesus is eternal. He is God. The creeds call him. He is God, very God. He is the divine son. He is the second person of the Trinity. He has no beginning and has no end. The creeds say he's not created but begotten, meaning he was never created but he was born. He was never created but he was born because he entered history. He has no beginning and no end. He's God, very God. I've also heard people say, you know, you know, God and Jesus, right? God and Jesus. What they mean to say is the Father and the Son, or the Father and Jesus. But I think subtly, subtly we think and believe that somehow Jesus is like less God than the Father. He's like, a, he's like not as much God. He's like little God. But that's wrong. Jesus is God. 
He is completely God. He is so much God that he says to his disciples, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is God, and the message of Christmas is that God has also become a man. That God has become a man. The New Testament confirms all over the place that Jesus is God. The book of Acts says it this way, that God purchased the church with his own blood. God purchased the church with his own blood. Well, whose blood was spilled? It wasn't the Father's blood. It was the Son's blood. It was Jesus' blood. So Jesus, God, purchased the church with his own blood. Jesus on the cross died as God to purchase us. One of the reasons the religious leaders got so mad at Jesus and wanted to get rid of him was because uh, one time, a couple times, he says to somebody uh, that he, he forgives their sins. He says, your sins are forgiven. You remember that time that Jesus heals the paralyzed man? If you've watched The Chosen, you've seen this scene. They lower the paralyzed man through the roof of the house because they couldn't get him around the crowd. They lower him in, and Jesus heals his paralysis, and he begins to walk again. And then he says to the man, your sins are forgiven. Everybody, everybody goes, oh. Right? They're not blown away by the fact that he healed the paralyzed man, but they're blown away that he said, your sins are forgiven. Why is that? Why are they blown away? Well, imagine with me for a moment that Nathan walked up here on the stage, and he punched me in the face. Let's not do it, but, you know, if he did, and then imagine for me with my moment that Ryan walked up on the stage and he said, Nathan, I forgive you. Well, I might look at him and say, Ryan, that's not yours to forgive. He punched me. But that's exactly what Jesus does. He says, he forgives this person, but how can he do it unless the sins committed by that man were against Jesus himself? And that's the point Jesus is making. That all sins are first and foremost against me. And so I alone have the power to forgive you. You see, he's God, and as God, sins are against him, and he alone can forgive them. Jesus forgave sins because as God, our sins are against him. Jesus forgave sins because as God, our sins are against him. Consider this. If someone claimed to be God, who would be the first person in their life, the first people in their life, to dismiss that claim as ridiculous? It would certainly be his family and the people that he was closest to, the people that he was around the most. That if you were claiming to be God, they'd be like, nah, I know that dude, he ain't God. Right? They would have seen his flaws, they would have seen through the lie, they would have seen the mistakes and the inconsistencies. But it is the people that were closest to him including his mom and his brother and the disciples. It is those people who believed in him. They saw the miracles. They saw the extraordinary things. But also behind closed doors, they saw the genuine reality that he was the same man outside that he was inside. He was the same man in public that he was in private. And over the course of years and years and years of following him so much, they believed that he was, in fact, God. Now, his brother took a while, right? As you can imagine, his brother took a while to come around. He rejected him at first, but eventually he was so compelled by the truth that he had to believe. And all of the disciples believe this truth so much that they go to their death claiming he was God. They go to their death claiming that they never lied, that it was all true. Now this is even more, more interesting. 
when you consider the fact that it would be Jewish people who would be the last people on earth. Jewish people would be the last people on earth to believe that God would ever take on human flesh. You see, the Romans believed that Zeus and their other gods came down disguised as mortals all the time and lived among us. That was no big deal. The Eastern religions believed that their gods came down in the form of avatars all the time. They, they took on avatars and lived among them all the time. That was no big deal for them. But the Jews, they believed in one God who was spirit and who was transcendent. And he was the uncreated creator. He was above and outside of them. He was so holy. He was removed from this broken world and could never take on flesh that was corrupt. So for the Jews to believe that Jesus indeed was God in the flesh, they must have seen something so miraculous and, and consistent and crazy that it matched the claim. That it matched the claim that he was God. They were convinced on every level, and so they were willing to give their lives for it. See, the truth, God, the creator of the universe, the speaker of the cosmos, the all-powerful, infinite, eternal being, became man. And inside this one person was all of the divinity and all of the humanity wrapped in one new man, the God-man, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. This is not like Hercules. This is not a demigod. This is not a, a part God, part man situation. This is the fullness of God taking on the fullness of human flesh. In the same way that we have to use a lens to look at the sun, you, through a telescope, you put a lens on to see the sun. In the same way, those who beheld God beheld him through the lens of human flesh. Here is some theology math for you. Now, I don't like math, but this is just some basic math. The incarnation is addition, not subtraction. It's addition, not subtraction. When Jesus takes on flesh, it is addition. Not subtraction. He is adding to his person, not subtracting from it. Jesus is adding humanity to his divinity. Not removing divinity to make room for humanity. He is adding huma humanity to his divinity. He has always been God, but now he is also man. This doctrine is so important for understanding who Jesus is. It's important for what he came to do. You see, if Jesus was fully man but not fully God, he could not have been qualified to save us. But if he was fully God but not fully man, he wouldn't have been able to take our place to save us as he, he had to be both. Or think about it this way. As a human, Jesus can understand and sympathize with our suffering. But as God, Jesus can do something about our suffering. He had to be both. He had to be both. He had to be able to take our place and he had to be able to take our place. This doctrine is so important that for hundreds of years, for thousands of years, people have fought over it. There are so many heresies named after men who have come before us that held to wrong views about Jesus. Uh, that they're, they're, They have names, you know, heresies named after them. Either they overemphasize his humanity or they overemphasize his deity or in some way. Uh, or they made him an angel, like the, high, you know, the Jehovah's Witness. They, their heresy is that he's the highest angel. Or they make them a spirit or some other th wrong things. In church history, there have always been these big councils, right? These big councils where all of these people get together and they debate things and make decisions. And the church has split over some of them. And, 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 or they, they write creeds from these things. Well, it was the year 325 and the emperor Constantine convened what we call the Council of Nicaea. And at the Council of Nicaea, 300 bishops attended from all over the world to debate the nature of the Trinity. 
which involves Jesus and his nature. And a guy, a guy named Arius began to argue very passionately in front of all of the assembly that Jesus was not equal to the Father. That Jesus was not equal to the Father. And he kept on going. He said he was less. He had to be less divine, less divine than the Father. Well, one of the bishops heard too much of this. He got so angry that Arius would not only believe something so wrong, but that he would so passionately get up and try to lead others astray into this false teaching that this bishop got up, walked across the room, and knocked him out. Maybe you think that's too intense over a theological disagreement. But this one's pretty important. And I, I, don't, commit, I don't, don't go punch anybody, but it's important. And actually, all of you know the guy that did the punching. His name was Nick. Some of you know him as Saint Nick. So all I'm saying is that if you want to be on the nice list this Christmas, you might want to get the hypostatic union right. <laughs> or Santa Claus might knock you out too. Behold the hypostatic union where God becomes fully God, becomes fully man. Number three, behold his condescension. Behold his condescension. I remember the first time I sang this word in, in a song, the song, I think we sang it this morning, Behold the Wondrous Mystery. We sing it a lot. And we, the line says this, in our longing and in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ who condescended, took on flesh to ransom us. I remember reading, singing that and being like, I don't know what that means. Because you think of con, condescend as negative, right? It's bad. Like you're condescending. Right, but condescend means, uh, you know, we, we use it as that you feel superior, but it means that you're above. And often it's negative, right, because you feel above people, but it just means that you're above something. To condescend is you're above. And Jesus was clearly above us. Clearly above us in heaven and in glory and in holiness. He's above us on every level. Philippians 2, 6 says it this way. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The word grasp here is really important. Often when we read this, I think we read it and think, oh, equality with God is not something that we could understand. Like we couldn't grasp it. Like we couldn't get it. But that's not what he means at all. That's not what's being communicated here. Grasp means hold on to to cling to, to grasp, to, to hold on. Jesus did not think that he had to hold on to all of his divinity and his power and his wealth and his might. He did not need to grasp and hang on to his deity while he put on his humanity. He was perfectly content to set aside his rights as God in order to come and be a man and to serve. He gave up what he was owed in order to serve. He shows the sort of humility. Who gives up power? Who gives up wealth and might and control and comfort to lessen themselves to serve others? Who leaves their high position to serve those beneath him? Who condescends like that? Who goes from up high to down low? Who condescended? Behold with me for a moment the God who does, 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 does just that. Man's maker was made that he, the ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast. That the bread of life might hunger, that the fountain of living water might thirst, that the light of the world might know darkness, that the way would get tired on his journey, that the truth himself would be accused of false teaching, that strength himself would grow weak, that the healer would be wounded, and that life himself would die. You know, God had given everything in heaven 
He had everything in heaven. He was in need of nothing, and yet he gives it all up. He gives everything up. Why? What would motivate him to do this? The answer is quite simple. The answer is you. He gives up the glories and the palace of heaven for you. Jesus could make you all hit your knees. He could force you with but a word to hit your knees to worship him. He could force you to do his bidding and to complete his will. But what he wants more than your servitude and your worship is to make you whole. He wants your hearts. He wants to heal you. He wants to walk with you again in the cool morning breeze on a summer day. He wants you. And so he gave up his throne to get you. The only one who could rightly feel superior condescended, gave up his high position and came down on our level. So behold a God who condescends, who humbles himself, who makes himself lowly, who serves those he created. Even those, even loves those who rebel against him. A God who makes himself small for the sake of love. And finally, behold Emmanuel. Behold Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. And this is the central message of Christmas, that God chose to be a man so that he could come and be with us. You know, almost every time God shows up in the Old Testament, it's scary. Right? When God shows up in the Old Testament, it's terrifying. He shows up to Job as a whirlwind. He shows up to Moses as a burning bush that's not consumed, and then to the Israelites as a, as a tornado of fire. He shows up in the temple as the Shekinah glory that if you get too close or touch it, you drop dead. God in the Old Testament is terrifying and scary. But in the Old Testament, he's also distant. He's scary and consuming, and so you got to keep your distance. you got to stay back. But when Jesus, as when God shows up in the manger, he comes near. No longer does he keep us at arm's length. No longer is he terrifying. He comes in the form of a little baby, and he comes near. Many of you know what it's like to look back on Christmas memories. And you look at those times of opening presents with your family. You think of those times of the, of the great big feast you had on Christmas. Or you think about your Christmas traditions, whatever those are, making ornaments together, playing uh, a, a dirty Santa or white elephant game, or uh, playing some kind of, you, you have your own traditions. And as you look back on those, as you reminisce on those memories, sometimes they come with an ache in your soul. They come with an ache in your soul because Maybe your grandparents are no longer here to continue those memories. Maybe they come with an ache because your parents are no longer here to continue those memories. Maybe it comes with an ache because your spouse is no longer here to continue those memories. And every time you look at a Christmas tree or an ornament or something like that, it breaks you a little more. The ache grows and it hurts because you feel it deep in your bones that something is missing. That same ache. That same ache that we all have as those we miss this time of year is felt by all of creation. Every person deep in their soul, not just for lost loved ones, but aches, every human heart instinctively aches and misses what it was like to walk with God in the cool of the garden. We miss our God. 
We miss what it was like to be near to him. We have uh, encoded in our souls the nearness we should have with God but don't have. And so we ache and we miss something we've never had. And we can't quite put our finger on it all the time. We know that there's something that should be there, something that should make us feel the deep joy. And we get lots of taste of it, right? We get these brief moments of it, right? As you sit around a campfire or as you sing carols with your family or as you sit around at dinner and you just look for a moment and there's this brief hiccup of joy. And you're like, there it is. And the moment you feel it, it's gone. This brief echo of a reminder of a joy that you're supposed to have, you're supposed to experience, and it goes away and the ache remains. The ache remains because there's something deeply missing. What's missing is that God was supposed to be with us. And so sometimes we can feel alone. Some of you in this room are widows or widowers, and, and every Christmas your heart aches. Because you feel alone. Some of you in this room are surrounded by loved ones and yet still you feel alone. The reality of Jesus in the manger means that you never have to be alone. The reality of Christmas means you never have to be alone. Because God came to be not just with us. He came to be with you. God with us, but also God with you. Jesus came to be with you. And though we will be physically with him one day in the future, that does not negate the reality that he is with you right now. And so when you lay your head down at night and when you rise in the morning and every moment in between, Jesus is with you. He left heaven, humbled himself, came all the way to earth to make it possible that he could be with you again. And so here's my question for you. What are you doing this Christmas to be with him? What are you doing that you might be with him? You don't have to be lonely. You don't have to be disconnected. You do not have to feel the dull ache of loneliness or lack of joy because Jesus is near. He's with you. But you've got to connect to him. So this Christmas, spend time in his word. Spend time in prayer. Spend time in meditation. Spend time talking with him. Spend time talking to the one who literally moved heaven and earth so that he could be with you. You don't have to be alone because God is with us, because God is with you. Finally, Emmanuel means God with us. It does not mean God with all. It means God with us, not God with all. He came for those who wanted him. He came for those who knew they needed him. He came for those who were sick and knew they needed a doctor. He came for those who were sinful and knew they needed forgiveness. He came for the broken, for the downtrodden, for those who knew they needed a Savior. He came for the lonely, the heartbroken. He came for the homesick. My biggest question for you that you need to ask yourself this morning is, are you included in the us? Are you included in the us? Is God with you? Have you been brought into the family of God by giving your life to Jesus? Are you included in the us? Christmas is about the incarnation that God sent his son into the world of men so that men might become sons of God. The question for you is, has the baby in the manger, the king of kings, the God-man, the one born of a virgin, the one born to die, has this Jesus entered your life and changed your life? Or are you still on the sideline thinking that Christmas is a great idea? It's a cool story. It's great for the kids, but you leave it there. Stories of extraordinary births have no power to change our lives. No power 
No matter how big the baby was born, no matter how long of a marathon someone ran, no matter how old a person was born, those stories have no power to change our lives. But the story of Jesus' birth, it doesn't change our lives because of how extraordinary it is, though it is extraordinary. It changes our lives because of who this baby was. The God-man and what he came to do. It changes our lives because this baby came to bring us back to God. He brought God to us. He brought our home to us. But this story is only extraordinary, and it only changes our lives when we actually believe it. And not just believe it from a distance, not just intellectually agree to it, but when we actually surrender our lives to him and let what he did for us change us from the inside out. Have you embraced the reality of Christmas, the reality of the incarnation, that God became flesh to be with us, or are you still watching from a distance? Are you part of us that God came to be with? Don't just let it be God with us. Make sure it's God with you this Christmas. Let's pray. Father, this morning we we celebrate and we recognize and we uh, worship a baby in a manger, a God with us, that you would, you would give up your throne, come down to earth, be made weak, frail, and little, that you might save us from our sins. God, we thank you. Father, for those in this room this morning who have never embraced this, this, this Christmas story, who have never surrendered to this king in a manger, who've never been changed from the inside out by this truth. Maybe they've agreed with it mentally. Maybe they've, they've, they've believed it from a distance, but it's not changed them because they've not bowed their knees to it and given their lives to it. Father, would you give them the courage this morning to do that? As we sing this song, I'm going to stand up here on the left, and if that's you and you want to talk about what it means to follow Jesus and to be changed by him, by this God-man, man in the God in the flesh, come talk with me. I'd love to talk with you about that. If you're here this morning and you're struggling with feeling lonely, you're struggling with feeling distant from God, or you feel the ache of loneliness, or you've got anything else going on in your life and you just want someone to pray with you, I would be so honored to do that. God, give us the strength to do what we need to do this morning. Maybe we just need to sing and reflect on Jesus and behold him. God, help us to do what you need us to do. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. All people said, let's stand together.